0: Hey, this morning we're going to be in First Thessalonians, chapter three, verses six through ten. If you want to begin to make your way there, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't own one, we'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. And if you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front that's going to let you know how to locate the book of First Thessalonians. As we make our way through this morning, just know that the large numbers are. Chapters and the small numbers are verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. Man, I hope you were able to join with us uh, this morning as we had an opportunity to gather in prayer. It such a beautiful thing to see God's people gathered, wanting really nothing more than just to come into his presence, nothing more than Jesus. It's not that we're Asking for things, asking for stuff, we are asking for Him. We're asking that our lives be more closely aligned with Him. We're asking that our heart beats more in line with Him. It, 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 in line with the way that we began this morning, I want to start, actually let us just start by reading the text and then we'll come back to this. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 through 10. Paul says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. Then he asks this long question. He says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Let me pray for us once again. Father, this morning as we come and we open your word, we recognize uh, that you have paid it all indeed. Though our sins were filthy, they were as scarlet, you have made us as white as snow through the sacrifice of your son Jesus, who took upon himself the penalty and the punishment for our sin, so we're able to come into this place set free, so we're able to come into this place made new, so we're able to come into this place with eyes open, with hearts beating for you, ready to live out your will for our lives. God, even as we come in this morning, we recognize the various lies that we are tempted to believe. That the enemy speaks to our heart and tells us that though others are white, still we remain scarlet. Still we remain with the sting, with the stain of our sin on our lives. That there's something yet for us to do to attain to righteousness. God, I pray that you would help us to send that lie back to hell from whence it came, that we would cling to the cross of Christ, that we would cling to salvation in the name of Jesus, that we would see ourselves the way you see us through the blood of your Son. God, help us to live out the reality of the redemption that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. Father, as we Worship in safety this morning. We pray for those the world over who do not worship in safety. They worship this morning with lookouts. They worship this morning with fear. They worship this morning in hesitation. And so God, we intercede on their behalf that although their lives would be in jeopardy, they would find themselves resting in your hand. That although this morning that they would uh, rightfully have the fear that someone would turn their name in that they could lose their livelihood that they could lose their lives that they would be separated from their families that this morning that they would worship as we see in John 4 in spirit and in truth because this morning they worship the name of Jesus Father would you give us clarity this morning as we worship would you give us focus would you able would you enable us to cast down our doubts would you enable us to cling even more tightly to the cross of Christ and the redemption we enjoy in the name of your son Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Over the last year, for whatever reason, I've given myself to reading a fair amount on the topic of counseling. And one counselor that I've really come to enjoy and and, and learn a great deal from, and, and learn a great deal about myself in listening to, and in reading and interacting with what he has to say is a guy named Adam Young, who's a counselor up in Fort Collins, Colorado. Now, Young, when he's talking about uh, parenting and he's talking about family of origin, so what family did you grow up in and what was that like and what were the systems in place and how did your parents relate to you? He says that parents, in order to create in their child as an adult, what's referred to as secure attachment, Essentially, that the, the, you know that as you have needs, someone will respond to you. You have, don't have trouble being alone. You are a well-adjusted person who lives in society. In order for that to be true of you, then there needs to have been a 50% success rate. Your parents need to be good enough parents, and these things need to be true in them. They need to practice these six things. Attunement, which is awareness. Responsiveness. Engagement. Here's a big one, affect regulation. Your parents need to have been strong enough to handle your negative emotions. And then lastly, your parents needed to have a willingness to engage in repair. So let's look at these just quickly. Uh, Then the counseling uh, message will be over and we'll move on to book your therapy sessions. The idea of awareness. Were your parents so attuned, so aware and attentive to you that they knew what you were feeling? They knew more than just the smile on your face or the frown you wore. Your parents, was there some awareness in them to how you were feeling? Were they responsive when you were distressed, when you were mad, sad, or afraid? Did your parents respond to you? Or did they use that as an opportunity to continue to pursue whatever was on their heart? Did they ignore you in those times? Engagement. Listen to this. Did your parents have an internal intention and a genuine desire desire to truly know you and to know your heart? Do you have the sense as you reflect back upon your childhood that that your parents wanted to know you? They wanted to know your dreams. They wanted to know your fears. They wanted to know your heart. Affect regulation. Essentially, were your parents able to soothe you when you were anxious or scared and to excite you, to stimulate you when you were shutting down? Were your parents the ones that you were able to go to when you were feeling nervous? And were they able to engage in this affect regulation, which enables you later in life to be able to do that on your own? Were your parents strong enough to handle your negative emotions? Did your parents welcome your anger, your sadness, your fear? As a child, you needed to be free to express negative emotions, to cry, to rage, to fall silent. Knowing that you would be responded to in a loving and a meaningful way, you needed to know deep down that your emotions were accepted and allowed. And lastly, and for us as parents, this is one that's difficult but incredibly necessary. Was there a willingness on the part of your parent to engage in repair? When your parents hurt you, did they own and rectify the harm done? You see, a healthy and trusting attachment is not built on the absence of failure. It doesn't mean your parents were perfect. None of your parents were. And if you're a child and you're looking at your parents and saying that I will be perfect, well, let me just spare you 20 years from now. No, you won't. It doesn't depend on an absence of failure, but on a willingness of the parent to own and rectify failures when they do occur. Now, why am I engaging in this? Why am I opening up this idea of attunement? Why am I opening up this idea of secure attachment? You see, because that, in in some sense, is what the church has an opportunity to be. That, in some sense, is, is, is what the church has an opportunity to be And that is what we see the Apostle Paul spell out in chapter 3 and verses 6 through 10. Paul was attuned to the needs of the Thessalonians. So when the Thessalonians are rejoicing, Paul is rejoicing. When he has some sense that they are negatively affected, that they are suffering, the Apostle Paul is suffering right along with them. Now, I don't know what your experience in church has been, I do know some of your experiences in church have been difficult. In conversations with some of you in this body, I know that the places you've been, the place where you are now has been a place that has been marked by difficulty for you because you have felt overlooked, because you have felt marginalized, because, plainly put, you have experienced harm at the hands of those who are entrusted to care for you. And so because of that, it makes it difficult for you to trust that pastors, it makes it difficult for you to trust that fellow members, it makes it difficult for you to trust anyone that would take the moniker Christian could have anything good in terms of how they relate to you. And so what we have to do is look at how the Apostle Paul lays out this framework then for how we must engage and how we must return to engagement when we fail. And fail we will. And when we fail, it's going to impact some of you negatively. And when you fail, it's going to impact some of us negatively. It's going to be this place where we unfortunately have opportunity and engage in hurting and harming one another. But can it also be this place where when we engage in the process of hurting and harming one another, that in love we could turn to one another and say, brother, sister, the way you engaged has harmed me. And in love and in kindness, we could hear them respond in compassion and say, I am sorry that I have harmed you. Will you forgive me? Look at what Paul writes. Paul has been in this place of, of anxiousness, uh, of anxiety, if you look back at chapter 3 and verses 1 and 5, he said, when I could bear it no longer, uh, in verse 1, verse 5, when I could bear it no longer, he is worried that they're going to fall away from the faith. He's worried, he says, that the tempter would come and he would tempt you to bail on Christianity. And so he's been caught up in this sense of not really knowing how they're doing, not really knowing how things are going to come, and so they sent Timothy on this trek from Athens to uh, Thessalonica and then they meet back up in Corinth and when he meets back up in Corinth you can almost kind of see in this picture in your mind Timothy running in and he's like (laughs) Paul's like brother catch your breath and what he's trying to say there breathlessly is it's not so bad And Paul breathes this epic sigh of relief. And look what he says here. But now that Timothy has come from us to you, he has brought good news of your faith and good news of your love. Now the word he uses there for good news is the gospel. So what we get this sense is that Paul's overwhelming preoccupation has been this belief and this fear that Satan would have come along, that he would have whispered sweet nothings into their ears, that he would have led them astray, that he would have led them to have... uh, Bad or false beliefs about Paul, bad or false beliefs about Christianity, that they would have been backslidden. But what he hears instead is that the gospel is looming large in this community. Now, that's a glorious picture. But he doesn't just stop there and say, listen, Timothy came back, and he told us that when I walk in the back doors of your church, when I walk onto the parking lot of your church, when I see your chariots outside, when I see the way that you hang up your sandals, when I talk to you, when I hear of you, it's just this kind of prevailing sense of the gospel. He gives us something with much more clarity. He describes it as the good news of their faith and the good news of their love. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14, he says, for since we believe, So since we have faith, in essence he says there, that Jesus died and rose again, even through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. When he writes of them, he says, I recognize the gospel is flourishing in your fellowship because you have faith in Jesus. One of the single most important components as to how well we are doing is the vitality of our faith here in this building here in this church, here in this community, as a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ, how is your faith engaging and revealing the hope of the gospel? And this is something that has been increasingly more difficult over the last couple of years As we have encountered difficulties, setbacks, obstacles that give us opportunity, make demands on us to have an exercise of this faith. So when we begin to think of ourselves as individuals, when we begin to think of ourselves as a community, what is our faith and our exercise of our faith saying about how we believe and live out the gospel? Paul doesn't just leave it with the idea of their faith, he moves directly into the application and extension of their love of the gospel. Now in Mark 12, 30 and 31, we read and we come to this understanding of how love is to be visited in these two key important ways. Jesus, speaking to the scribes, said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Then he went on and he says, in the second, it's like it. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. There are no greater commandments than these. So we see operative in the lives of the Thessalonians is this understanding, this faith tethered to God through Jesus. That, that There's nothing I need to do. There's nothing that I need to make up that is deficient in me to be where I need to be vertically with God. Jesus has already accomplished that. But there is a demonstration of the gospel. There's a demonstration of this faith and of my belief in the sufficiency of Jesus. And that needs to be lived out in a full bore. I mean just everything in me Pushing and focusing on what it looks like For me to love God With every part of who I am With everything my hand touches With everything my eye sees With every beat of my heart Every articulation of my mouth Every draw in a breath I need to be exhaling what it looks like For me to love God And so we come into this understanding That there should be no area of our lives That are cordoned off and says This is what it is to love me This is what it is to love me over here and, and this stuff over here, this is what it looks like for me to love God. You see, everything in every facet of our lives, in all of the various ways that we live, need to be lived faithfully unto God. This is true of you. Well, certainly we would recognize that there are various as- aspects, there are certain things in our lives, areas where we are not loving God perfectly. This is true of all of us. God is working, and he's growing us. And in his grace, he's drawing us and showing us. And Matt, do you not see that there's this area, there's this aspect of your life over here where you are not loving me faithfully? Maybe you feel, in your sense of self-assurance this morning, I love God perfectly. But in honesty, in truth, you would recognize when it comes to the second application of loving your brother or your sister as yourself, your neighbor as yourself, you'd say, well, that's where it gets to be more difficult. And we begin to move into all the various rationalizings and all the various reasonings and all the various oh, explanations and defenses for why we, don't, why we don't need to engage in loving them as we love ourselves. But in so doing, we find ourselves moving in direct disobedience to what God has clearly said there in Mark 12. It's really sad to have this understanding That I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the last decade with people in our community and and, and people in other locations that have been so incredibly hurt by the church. So incredibly hurt by Christians. When we have incredibly clear directions, and I'm not saying there's nothing cryptic or difficult to understand in the Bible, I'm just saying this is not one of those places. This seems to be such a clear instruction, and it seems to be one that we are able to self-diagnose and one that we should be able to hear the voice of reason from those who come to us and say, I know you believe in the gospel. I see the resonance of faith in your life. I do not, however, see you living out a a love ethic that flows from the gospel. Look at how he goes on to brag on them. Second half of verse six, he says, and it's reported that you always remember us kindly and you long to see us as we long to see you. Have you ever had one of these friendships that you're pretty sure that you're incredibly enamored, like you just enjoyed spending time with this person, with this friend, but you weren't really sure about how they felt about spending time with you? Like you send them a message and all you wanted to see, if you have an iPhone and you should, is the little dot, dot, dot that comes up there and then it disappears you're like, hey, do you want to grab coffee? The dot, dot, dot appears, and you're like, they want to grab coffee, they want to grab coffee, and it disappears, and you don't hear back from them? Like, it, it, it creates in you this sense of, oh do I just write and say, just kidding? Like, is that, is that too desperate? It's getting real in here. Is that too desperate? Oh, I'm sorry, I meant to send that to someone who cares. <laughs> and you say that, and you find out their mom died, and then you write, Just kidding. Sorry, praying for you. Smiley, frowny, confused face. If you have kids, this is when you just blame it. I'm sorry, my son took my phone. They send messages out to people all the time. Whew. But there's something in us that wants this, this sense of reciprocated investment that when we long to see somebody, when we care for someone, we want to know that when we go out there on that limb to say, listen, I care for you, I love you, I I want you in my life, that this person is going to meet us with something more than warm indifference. That's nice. And Paul is so incredibly overjoyed. See, he's been operating in this posture of being heartbroken for the Thessalonians and the plight he felt that they were engaging in and when he finds out that their heart posture towards him is yes we want paul to come back he's so incredibly overjoyed now his experience as he writes this is to be in corinth which is to be in a place where the, the whole time he's there they're comparing him and another guy that they think's better And so this is the vantage point that he's writing from. But what he hears from these Thessalonians is, please come back. We need you here. We want you here. Now look at what he says here. He says, it is reported that you always remember us kindly. Now if you have the TNIV or the NIV, it says that you you, you think fondly of the time that we were together. But that's not really what Paul is saying there. You see, operative within the first century is this understanding that to remember someone well, especially to remember a teacher well, is to apply their teaching. It's to apply their teaching. And so if they're remembering Paul well, it means that they are remembering that they are applying his teaching well. Now let's just say that that tomorrow morning, uh, I don't wake up, and, 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 and I'm just gone, I'm in heaven, I'm like, huh? I mean, so I'm just singing with the angels, right? I'm just praising God all the day long. And in the middle of that, you guys are here and you're stuck and I'm up in heaven, hallelujah. And you're like, (laughs) some of you are doing that. To remember me well is to remember the last decade of teaching. To remember me well isn't to look at my life and say, well, these are the ways he hurt my feelings. To remember me well will be to be faithful to the scriptures will be to open God's word next Sunday and say, what does 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 7 through whatever say? It's to be faithful to the Lord. So when Paul writes there, he sees that they're living the gospel well. He sees it it present through their faith and through their love. He recognizes that this is a kindness to him. The imprint of the gospel has marked their lives so deeply. That they're living out faithfulness to God and faithfulness to the teaching of Paul at the same time. And something about the way we live and the way we engage, and our small groups are gonna talk about this, is an indication as to who exactly we're remembering well. What lessons are impacting your life? Are you remembering Jesus well in how you live? Are you remembering an angry father? Are you remembering a distant mother? Are you remembering in the ways that you treat your employees? Are you remembering in the way you treat your coworkers? Are you remembering a boss that lorded his authority over you? Are you remembering the words of a humble carpenter who allowed his heart to be open and broken and allowed himself to receive others in whatever way they came to? Who are you remembering? And how are your remembrances of Jesus being visited upon the lives of the people you come in contact with? See, when Paul hears about them, he hears they're living faithfully, uh, his teaching, that they want to see him, that this reciprocal engagement, it, it, it just overwhelms him with joy. And look at how it changes his emotional state. He says, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. See, Paul knew what it was to suffer when he, actually before he came to see the Thessalonians, he was in Philippi, and there he was beaten, there he was imprisoned, there he was humiliated, and there he was summarily sent out. And when he left there, then he goes to Thessalonica, and when he's there with the Thessalonians, uh, there's an uproar and he's ushered out of the city and he goes to Berea and he faces the same thing and he goes to Athens and in Athens he's ridiculed and he's thought to be a madman and now he finds himself in, in Corinth and in Corinth what he recognizes is such significant, sub, such significant disobedience and obstinacy to the gospel that these people are, are born over with a sense of pride allowing themselves to articulate the hubris that says I have a wisdom better than the gospel. I have a wisdom better than Jesus, and Paul knows of nothing else. He clings to the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus, even in the face of obstinacy, and in the face of false wisdom. And so this is the difficulty, this is the life that he has lived, and he's sitting there, in some sense we see his scars on his forehead, we see the scars across his back. We see the weariness of his heart, and what we find is that that weariness is matched with elation when he hears the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ being visible through the faith and love of the Thessalonians. Even in my distress and affliction, I have found comfort when I learn the story. He's attuning to that. He's allowing his emotional state to be impacted by their spiritual state. Paul is riding, in some sense, the wave of emotion, and he he is dead set on aligning his heart with their heart. And look at verse 8. He says, for now we live. In essence, you could say, I have a new lease on life, because what I've come to understand and know is that you are living faithfully. This is the church we all want to be a part of. This is the church that when you don't show up, when you're not engaged, when you walk in and you are visibly marked with despair and depression, someone comes to you and they say, Can you tell me if I could pray for you because you look like you need prayer? Would you be willing to share some of what you're going through with me? Would you be willing to allow me to intercede for you in what appears to be a difficult time? All of us have been a part of the church that's not really concerned with that. What it's concerned with is is spreading information and what we've come to know about people, what we've come to know about their struggles, because somehow in church we feel incredibly savvy, good, We feel like we excel at dispensing of information we actually have no right to. And we like that. But what we end up doing to the lives of people who are suffering with depression, who are suffering from heartache, from a marriage that is difficult, what we end up doing in those times is dishonoring our God and the lives of the people who have entrusted to us a portion of their story. And we disrupt and we destroy any shot of unity any church could ever have. And the enemy rejoices. And the tempter wins a victory. What Paul says is, now I'm alive because I hear that the gospel is vibrant in you. And look at what he does here. He says, if you are standing in the Lord he bases his continued sense of this new lease on life with their continued spiritual wellness. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to allow someone to invest in your life to that degree? Knowing that when you fail to pray, when you fail to study, when you fail to be faithful, that it is negatively impacting someone else? This is the level of interconnectedness that we must have in the church. This is the level of care that we must both extend and receive from those around us. But we come into this understanding, we come to this idea that I don't stand fast all the time. I don't remain steadfast. There are times and opportunities in my life where I am absolutely failing. And so what does God have for me in these times of failure? What does God have for me in these times where where I'm I'm overwhelmed and I can't stand the thought of somebody peering into my life and seeing my failure and seeing me move, not closer to the Lord, but move further away from the Lord? And how does God feel about me in these times? This past week in my Bible reading, I'm in Deuteronomy 30. And so this is the second time Moses is given the law. Moses is about to die. He's not going to get to enter into the promised land. He has disobeyed the Lord. He has dishonored God and not held him as holy before the people. And he's about to pay the price for it. So they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. And as the 40 years we followed the Israelites, we recognize that they're a group we can really get on board with. They do really well for a short time and then they do really terribly. They do really well for a short time and then they do really, really terribly. And that seems to be the way in which most of us live our lives. So before they ever cross into the promised land, listen to what God instructs Moses to write, Deuteronomy 31 through 3. He's talking about them falling away and what it's gonna be like when they fall away. They've not even entered the promised land yet. And his provision for their rebellion is already going before them. He says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes And have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Do you hear something of the heart and the care and the kindness of our God in that? When you find yourself unable to stand fast, in every step you try and take, in every foothold you try and maintain, in every Thing you hold on to begins to crumble is sand in your hand and every step begins to take you further and further and further away from the Lord. His heart is beating for you. His kindness calling to you. His hand grasping for you, his voice entreating you, come back, Do you have a sense of the provision and the care of God before you ever fail? You see, in the midst of failure, God isn't sitting out there thinking, I cannot believe Ken failed again. I cannot believe Billy failed again. I cannot believe Doug failed again. I cannot believe Joel failed again. I cannot believe Reagan failed again. I cannot believe Brent failed again. His prayer for you and the prayer for Jesus, prayer of Jesus for you I pray it doesn't keep them away. I pray that they don't feel the need to atone for their sin because my son has already atoned for their failure. God's provision and his care is way out in front of your failures. So when you fail, he calls you back and he enables you to return to this place of standing fast. When Paul thinks about that, and he thinks about the goodness of God, verse nine, he says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake? In essence, Paul is saying, I just, I, I run out of words. There's just no amount of thankfulness I can engage in that's gonna adequately express how glad I am for you and how you are standing in the Lord. Luke 15, and describing within these three accounts of what it is to have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. They go out and they have the lost sheep, and they go and they find the one amongst the ninety-nine. And the owner comes back and he says, And when he comes, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. When the woman comes back from finding her lost coin, she calls her friends together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. But just so I tell you, there's more joy amongst the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the heart of our God. When we give ourselves to repentance, all of heaven parades itself and cries out, Hallelujah, they're back. Hallelujah, they're back. This is what our God wants. There is no benefit to beating yourself up. There is no benefit to wallowing in your self-pity. There is no benefit in remaining and staying in the lies of the enemy that say, see, this is you, wretched sinner as you are. What he longs for you to experience is the warmth of his grace in this return. Hallelujah. He's back. This is to the end that Paul prays. He says, Earnestly, day and night, I gave myself to prayer for you, that I could see you face to face. And then he has this curious turn of phrase. He says, And supply what is lacking in your faith. Now I think we hear that and we have this belief that probably Paul's sitting there and he's got this legal pad and he's going down through and he's saying, didn't tithe, didn't attend regularly, didn't help the little old lady cross the street, spit on the little old lady when she was crossing the street. That's double. You see, that's not what he's doing. When he says supplying what is lacking, Paul, in love and care, is recognizing that people who've recently come to know the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, it says they have turned from worshiping idols to the living and true God. People who have made this radical life change don't know all the various areas and aspects and avenues of their life where faith needs to thrive. That's what Paul desperately wants to do is to come back into them and to say, can I just offer you a word of encouragement of what it looks like for faith to thrive in this area and aspect of your life? I know that you love Jesus. I know that you live a a faith for him that is strong. I know you have a love for him that is steadfast and secure. But have you considered what it might look like for the faith that you live in the community to be the faith that you have at work? I've seen you worship at church. I know that is glorious. I hear your voice, and, and it's definitely a joyous sound unto the Lord, and we'll just leave it there. But have you considered what it would look like to live your faith for this same God in the home you share with your unbelieving spouse? He wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. All of us have various areas of our life that become blind spots where faith does not currently thrive. And so we begin to ask ourselves and ask in the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit, what areas of my life is faith failing to reach? We as a body of believers begin to ask ourselves, what areas within this local fellowship is our faith failing to reach? I've heard often uh, from people who lived here in kind of the 90s within this community that Ridgecrest was known within the community as Rich Crest, which is super clever. And it's always easier to go back and take pot shots on something in the past because they don't involve and invest you. But there is an aspect to which that moniker, that name, still permeates within our community because we have not worked tirelessly to be known simply as a place where sinners can come and find rest. Simply as a place where people can come and meet Jesus. Simply as a place where they can come and be loved, come and be held by the Lord. And what would it look like? And what areas, what areas are you currently aware that we as a church are failing to allow faith to permeate? You see, this is something that takes all of us. None of us have perfect vision. None of us have perfect insight to the, to the health of our church but all of us are required at this level of investment to investigate what it would look like if faith did. Can I tell you, it's much easier to be the person who would go to another and to say, I see an area of your life, friend, where faith is failing to thrive. To do that, biblically, requires such an overwhelming sense of love for this other person that you can't stand to see their relationship with Jesus continue when this area of their life is not being visited by faith? Do you love others enough? The more difficult thing, and the thing that is going to be required of most of us, is in humility, Receiving this word from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Leslie. Amy. Angela. Jeremy. Tracy. Ken. Reagan. Jonathan. Jason. I see an area of your life where your faith is failing to reach. The tempter would lead you to engage in defensiveness. How dare you say that to me? But God would call you in humility to receive that message and to hear it through the lens of asking yourself, do I want to love Jesus in perfection? Or do I want to love Jesus in a sense of self-assuredness? Paul gives us this picture of what it looks like to set our hopes, to set our emotional state on the spiritual well-being of those around us. Man, I believe that this is the kind of church that we can be. I believe that this is the kind of, uh, this body of believers we can be. And more than that, more than just my belief and hope that this is who we can be, I believe that this is who we must be if we are to be faithful to love and serve Jesus all our days. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. We submit our lives to you. God, I pray that as we're in this place, that if there are any who do not know your son Jesus as Savior and Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. That they wouldn't believe the lies of the enemy. That there's something that they need to be but that they would believe your word, that your son has been all for them that is needed. That Jesus took upon himself the penalty and the punishment for their failures, for their disbelief. And in taking upon his body, upon the cross, their sins, he willingly died. He surrendered his life. And then in staying in the grave three days, he rose again, overcoming sin and overcoming death. And that same Jesus bids them to come and to know him, to come and to be forgiven. So God, would you move and stir in our hearts in this place. We love you. We submit our lives to you as a sacrifice and an offering of praise. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.